0: Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. There uh, is a temptation in preaching that I've been experiencing this week. This coming weekend, I'm going to be gone. I'm preaching at a men's conference in another church on Sunday. And so I've been writing sermons for that, and it's been a bugger because I'm trying to write a great sermon. And if you ever really try to say something, you know, you won't be able to. And I was reading this this morning. This was very helpful to me. It says, the notion of a great sermon is fatal. It hampers the freedom of Utterance it says, but a man who lives with God, whose delight is to study God's word in the Bible, in the world, in history, in human nature, who is thinking about Christ and man and salvation, that he should not be able to talk about these things of his heart seriously, lovingly, thoughtfully, simply is inconceivable. I do not believe it. Care not for your sermon, but for truth and for your people, and subjects will spring up on every side of you you have anything to say, just say it bravely and simply. And so when we get to our text this morning, that's what this text is like. It's very brave. It's very simple. It doesn't leave you room to wiggle, although you will try to wiggle off of it. This text is one of those that has to do with what Jesus says, let's say, in Matthew 7, where you have this temptation as a believer to be talk. You can talk as if you're godly. You can know the right things to say, but the internal fruit, the external holiness of life is not true. So Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit. Disease tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them, not by what they say, but by their fruits. And so, attend to this. Give, like, listen well here. This will be helpful, I hope. I'm going to read verses 16 to 26. So you see the context around this in Galatians chapter 5. So, Galatians 5 is an indication that he's kind of But I say, remember last week, this is an indication that he's kind of switching topics a bit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's ask God's help. Eternal Father, your word, like you, is eternal. It's settled in the heavens. And your faithfulness, which we thank you for, continues to your people, to all generations. And so please teach us now to delight in your holy law and never forget your precepts. We are yours. And so please save us from the wicked and teach us to carefully consider your testimonies. Amen. So let me read it again. This list. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality and impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and thing like, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that do to you? Is it doing anything to you? Many think that this is incompatible with God's grace. Some go so far as to look at Jesus selectively and see that he would never say anything like what Paul said. Jesus is kind. Jesus is accepting. Jesus is affirming. Jesus is love. And Paul corrupted Christianity with all this law. This is our world today, isn't it? Our world refuses to say no. Parents refuse to say no. Supervisors at work refuse to say no to the employee who's not pulling his weight. And so all the weight gets distributed to everybody else, but won't say no. You see, across our nation, those who are given responsibility to police don't say no anymore. They don't have any backup. There's no no in our world anymore. How parents... You know that when your kid is 6, 8, 10 months, they're ready to and need to sleep through the night. And, uh, you know, we'll see some of you and your eyes are red and bulgy and you're very tired and you haven't yet learned the gift of God's grace of saying no to your child and making him or her sleep through the night. It's often very painful. Sometimes arguments between the husband and wife that you may sometimes have to go in and say, no, we are not picking you up. Or you just shut the door and turn up the TV real loud and do that for two or three nights and teach your child that they are not the center of the universe and that it's actually really good for them to sleep through the night and that they are not going to die. They're not going to starve to death. What they actually need is to be told no. Now, that's nothing new, but it seems in our day that it's particularly difficult. Now, in this text, we see God's no. And we see it said very simply, very directly, with a warning. Now, if you've been paying attention at all to the book of Galatians, there is hopefully a question in your mind. Is there? What would that question be? I thought that up to this point, Paul had only been speaking negatively of God's law. Right? We saw back in chapter 2, verse 19, that through the law, that is the law of God's grace, I've died to the law. All of the commands. It's like they're I'm dead to them. I'm free to live in God. You look at chapter 3, verse 21. The law is contrary to the promises of God. Verse 22, Scripture in prison, everything under sin. Now that faith came in, verse 23, we were held captive in the law in prison, but now we're not. Okay? So no law. Woo-hoo! And now, law, with the threat, if you continue to disobey, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, did Paul forget what he wrote when he got here? Did he, like, write this in June and then took a break until the following March and got back to it and just forgot to read what he had written before? What's going on here? That's not our entrance into heaven was by faith in Jesus alone. That's true. Right? He's not not teaching opposite of that here. There are three lessons that are the foundation of our life in God, that every Christian has to learn. Lesson one is you cannot be saved by the law. You cannot Be accepted and forgiven and welcomed, adopted into God's family by your law keeping. The law, as far as it goes with your justification, is only to teach you that you cannot keep it to come to him. It removes all doubt that you aren't good but morally corrupt. Look back at chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That is, the Jews had God's word. They had God's law. And what if a Jew had paid attention at all to God's law? What what did it teach him? What did it teach her? What What is the law saying to those who read it? That a person cannot be justified by it. So that's lesson number one. Because of our sin, because of Adam's sin and our nature, we... Won't and so we're under condemnation. That's lesson one. Lesson two is Jesus died to save you from the curse of the law. It's the sweetest lesson, that's the highest lesson. That's the lesson you need to return to again and again and again and again. You despair under the law and you find freedom from that despair, from condemnation and acceptance with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's it's the joy of joys. That's your assurance. That's your comfort. That's your peace with God. What's the third lesson? Well, that's what we're learning today. That that faith in Jesus Christ that is alone that brings us to God should lead to a different kind of life. And that different kind of life isn't what saves you. It's just the fruit of your salvation. It's, if you have been grafted into Christ, there should be a life that is changing over time to become more like Christ. That's what we're learning here today. And one of the things to realize about ourselves is we not only need to, need to be told God's yeses, we'll see next week, but we need to have it very clearly spelled out, God's nose. This isn't a law that you keep in order to be justified by God, but because you're justified by God, it becomes a law that you want to keep because you love him. So, Pastor Mark read from John chapter 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not keep my commandments in order to be loved by me, but because I've loved you and now you love me, keep my commandments. So that's what we're seeing. So this isn't contrary to justification by faith. This doesn't undo everything that we've seen before. This is the third lesson, that we must continue to fear God and tremble before him and live lives of repentance. We're at that time of year where Christians typically celebrate the Reformation. In fact, without getting into a big debate, th- there is a Christian background even to Halloween. Ha- you know the word hallow. Halloween, though it can be corrupted and whatever, was, tip- was an early celebration of Christians, of saints who had gone before, particularly those who gave their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. And All Hallows' Eve was typically the night before, and the church would celebrate, and one of their celebrations became mockery of evil. They'd wear masks and do things that would kind of make fun of the devil, make fun of darkness. I'm not stating one way or the other, but the Reformation was built on this thought that a Christian is one who lives a life of repentance. It's somebody who has faith in Jesus Christ who now has learned to be sorrowful and hating their sin. And so they no longer want to walk in it. And that's what we're learning here. And so the goodness of a text like this is to bring conviction of sin, to help you be honest with yourself, to hold up a mirror that you might again see your need for Christ and see your need to live a life of repentance. A life of repentance a hatred of your sin, that you might not be somebody who looks externally good but is internally corrupt. That somebody has to put on the external whitewashing where you don't deal with the root, the heart, the flesh. You actually, as we read, fight against the desires of the flesh and walk by the Spirit. And so, Paul, having said that, having said that you have this war within you, desires of the flesh, desire of the Spirit is now going to make very plain the works of the flesh. And he says right away in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, plain. And he says that, I think, because you and I are really good at, is that really sinful? Right, teens and you're dating, how far is too far? You know, when you've asked that, your heart wants to go far, that you asking that question is a revelation that you are a wicked person who wants to indulge your flesh. That's what that question's for. How far can I go? How far can I itch my sexual need? But it's evident. It's clear. These things are right there in front of you. Now, what Paul does here, it looks like, is he gives a list of sins that are kind of chaotic there isn't much rhyme. Or reason. I think there's four categories here, but that's what sin is, isn't it? You'll notice that it says works of the flesh, where when it gets to the speed, it's uh, the spirit in verse 22. It's just the fruit. There's one singular where works plural. There's a million ways you can indulge your flesh. You are so willful and creative at this that this is what comes natural to fallen man. So this list isn't exhaustive. And it does boil down to we just love ourselves, to self-love. We really do want to please our flesh, even if it means displeasing our creator, our judge, our father. Now, the four categories here, I think, are pretty clear. The first three deal with sexual sin, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. The next two deal with kind of spiritual sins related to false worship, idolatry, and sorcery. The next eight deal with kind of unjust relational anger, enmity. And then the last two, the fourth category, kind of deal with sins of immoderate use or overindulgence, drunkenness, and orgies. Again, this isn't meant to be exhausted, exhaustive. It's meant to communicate that these are works, that you actually work hard to do, devise, manufacture, connive. Think Tower of Babel, remember that? They really planned and came together and worked hard to throw off God. So let's just briefly walk through these. The hope is that as God brings conviction to you that you don't hide that you don't kind of dismiss, excuse, but you're honest. And that if this is an ongoing issue for you, that you bring it into the light and bring it to my attention or to the other pastors or elders or other godly trusted people that you know will be hard on you in your sin. We're going to see in coming weeks, just real quick, look at chapter six. This follows right on the heel of our teaching. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, if transgression has you caught, you are a spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is what it means in verse 2 of chapter 6 to bear one another's burden, to fulfill the law of Christ, to love, to help each other fight in battle our sins, particularly those that catch us. And so confess your sins to one another. At our, in the um, group that I'm ordained with, Evangel Presbytery, we had our presbytery. Meeting, and one of the issues we dealt with was a sin in one of the pastors. He had called his elders or informed his elders of a specific ongoing sin in his life. And one of the things we do for each other is that sin then gets brought to us as a presbytery and we decide on what to do about it. And in this case, because it was now. What it was wasn't made known to us all. It was a small group appointed to help him. It wasn't for shaming him, but they decided that the sin was significant enough that he was put on leave for four months and barred from the Lord's Supper. A pastor. Now, one of the things that was very helpful, I thought, at the Presbytery meeting is one of the guys involved that got up and said, that he sinned is boring. That we sin is, you know, that's, That There's nothing remarkable, is it? But that we love each other enough to say no to each other and do something about it, that's remarkable. And so as you go through this list, that's what we want to be. That's what you want to be. Because there is a price at the bottom here, isn't there? There's a cost. It is that you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the most glorious, wondrous, pleasurable delightful hope future that you could ever imagine. There's nothing like being in the presence of God. If you've gotten at all a taste here in this world of God and his presence and his power and glory and beauty, just that it's going to be like a nuclear explosion of that forever. But if you continue to indulge your flesh now, you will not inherit that. So let's go through this. So we have first these three sexual sins, uh, sexual immorality. That word deals with just sins of a sexual nature, sexual contact, sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, I want to again say really clearly that sexual intimacy, sexual pleasure is a good gift of God within marriage. Don't, we don't want to be uh, thinking that sex is yucky or gross, or that it's godly to not enjoy it in marriage. It's not true. God gave Adam and Eve the gift of being male and female, coming together in lifelong covenant marriage and enjoying the fruit of that. And for the purposes of enjoying the pleasure having children, and protecting each other from temptation to sexual immorality. But there is such a thing as sexual immorality. And because we are sexual beings, because you've been made male and female, because God has given you this good desire, because it's so central to your being, this is going to be a main way that you'll always be tempted. And because it's so central to who we are, the destruction of this sin is massive, which, of course, you see all over our culture. So we should hate this. We should flee from it. So these are things like adultery, sexual activity outside of marriage, making out, prostitution, fornication, incest. Now, we know that the indulging of this is done in the name of love. We just love each other so much. That's not love, is it? That's just indulging your flesh. The next word, impurity, should bring to mind all of the Old Testament when it deals with uncleanness. If you read the book of of Leviticus, there's lots of verses about this is unclean, that is unclean. And so sexual sin is an impurity. We were bought with a price. We're to honor God in our bodies. You weren't redeemed by the blood of Jesus from impurity to indulge in it. This could be in our minds, isn't it? That we think on that which is pure and not indulge our lusts. And then we have this word sensuality, also sometimes translated debauchery, lewdness. This becomes a kind of a dismissiveness, a, um, a looseness, kind of a, a sexual carelessness without shame. Again, our culture is rife with this. We boast now in our sexual sin. It's, it's, it, you know, it's considered a, a virtue. The more sexually depraved you are, it's like the more virtuous you are. Jeremiah 6.15 talks about how God's people had no shame or ability to blush anymore over their sensuality. So that's the first category. Uh, As we've said and want to continue to say, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross, does forgive all sin, including sexual sin. And so there is hope in him but we must not continue to walk in it or will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next, we have two sins related to worship, idolatry. In fact, it's though we don't understand it as much today unless we think about it, it has always been closely associated between idolatry and sexual sin. That part of the worship of false gods included indulging in all manner of sexual immorality, but you see that today. Every culture is a worshiping culture, and wherever you see a lot of sexual morality, you can get close to what they're worshiping. That's our culture today. Now, idolatry, of course, does mean the worship of man-made idols, but in Scripture, the, the category of idolatry has to do with worshiping, a God, worshiping God in a way that you devise and not according to his word. So, again, we're celebrating the Reformation. Uh, one of the main things the Reformers reformed and brought back to Scripture was the worship of the church. You know, we, we don't have to have beads that we say certain prayers, we don't pray to Mary. We don't have to pay money to get our deceased ancestors out of purgatory. These were ways that we devised worship that we then said, God, this is how we're going to worship you, and God calls that idolatry. So any deviation from scriptural worship of God that we devise, that we do according to our will, is idolatry. Now, we can do that. Maybe baptism for you is an idol. You place a lot of hope in your baptism as if that is your righteousness before God. Maybe it's that your kids all are dressed up beautiful here and they all sing real nice. That's your idol. That's a good thing. We want that. But see, what we want to do is we want to fashion God as we find him tasteful and then worship him according to our taste and not according to his word. Sorcery or witchcraft, this is a very interesting word. Now, the worship of dark things, the worship of the pagan gods, the indulgence in witchcraft is being revived in our day. Now, don't think Harry Potter here. Um, Just think of People created in God's image, who are profoundly spiritual, but living in a totally materialistic world where there's nothing spiritual anymore, but they want it. And yet they want it according to their will. They want it according to their way. And so the draw of paganism and worshiping and witchcraft and darkness is very alluring. It's very attractive. It's very spiritual. It's very tangible. But this word, the interesting part of it, you'll hear it. The word in the Greek is pharmakeia. What does that bring to mind? Pharmacy. Pharmacy. This is where we get the word pharmacy or even drugs from. So the word does have to do with witchcraft, casting of spells, and so on, making of potions and medicines. And... In the time that this was written, it was often related to the mixing of medicines in order to destroy unborn human beings. Abortion. And so if you read some of the pastors around the site, so here's a pastor in, in 198 AD. All of life could proceed according to nature for us if we exert power over our desires from the beginning and do not, by evil devices or or schemes, kill the human offspring. So, the normal process of life would continue if we would deny our desires and not kill them. For those who, to cover their immorality, their sexual immorality, use abortifacient drugs, pharmakeia, same word, that expel the matter entirely dead, abort along with the embryo their own affection for mankind. You see, it's no different. This using of chemicals that destroy human life is nothing new, right? So to indulge our lusts, we destroy the fruit of it, children. That was considered an idolatrous part of Sexual morality, that's why this word is here. Now, we do this, of course, we do this not only with chemical abortions, as we know, but we also do it with just contraceptive drugs that keep conceived children from implanting in their mother's womb. The pill. But we as Christians should love life, should give ourselves to life. So there's those two sins, and now we have these eight nouns rapidly given in a row that deal with unjust anger animosity. One of the things that's very helpful about lists like this is it not only contains what we might consider extreme sins, witchcraft, which probably most of you would say, well, I'm not doing that. But then it says strife or kids, fits of anger. You do that. Wife, have you done that against your husband recently? Guys, you've done that at work or you're trying to break loose a nut from a bolt. You throw a fit. This, this is here. This is us. So we have enmity where you're just stirring up strife constantly. You're, there's a lot of discord. You despise people, come to hate them. Strife. You know, there are people who live for drama, constantly stirring up relational difficulty. There's always a tornado around him or her relationally. Petty bickering, gossiping. You have jealousy. Jealousy is when somebody has something or has gone farther and you want what they have. You're Ungrateful for what God has given you. You're discontented, feeling like you should have gotten what they've got. So you're jealous. Fits of anger, outbursts, often verbally fly off the handle. Rivalries, selfish ambition. You do what you do to, to get more. You work hard, but for self promotion to be seen. You constantly have to tell people, what you've done. You're always giving them your resume. Some do it from what they've done 20 years ago. Dissensions. Those are cultivate, cultivate divisions. They party spirit. Glad I'm not like them. And divisions. That word also is very interesting. That's in the Greek heresy. We get the word heretic from. A heretic is somebody who teaches false doctrine in order to gather a following and create a faction, a heresy. Now, the way that it happens in the church, though, is we take things that are important but of a lot less important than, let's say, the gospel, and we so camp on those secondary matters that we divide with each other who eat this but not that. Watch this, but not that. Wear this, but not that. And so we take these matters of conscience, Halloween, and create separations within the church body because you can't be Christian and celebrate Halloween, or you can't be Christian if you don't celebrate Halloween. And rather than being adults and having discussions and thinking well of each other, we have to divide over them. And then envy, this is the summary sin of these relational sins of anger where jealousy wants what somebody has, an envious person is degraded to just being ticked at somebody who has more and just wanting them to be lowered. It's no longer enough to just desire what they have to, to rise to their level. Now you just want them to be brought down to make yourself feel better. So you feel ill of someone above you. This is the sin of our culture. This is the sin we indulge in. We deserve. And then the last two sins, the sins of intemperance or overindulgence, drunkenness, somebody who is led by God's Spirit should not be under the control of a substance. We're not to give ourselves to these things. And then orgies or revelries or carousing. This is a a step down into the pit from drunkenness where your life is divided defined by a wildness, a giving of yourself to wild parties and fornication and so on. Again, this isn't exhaustive. Uh, The warning comes. I warn you as I warned before. Fathers, do you warn your children? Elders, do you warn the saints? Again, I, I think this third lesson, that how we live matters, has been utterly forgotten by the church. We refuse to say God's no, we refuse to warn. Why? Why do we refuse to warn? Why do we refuse to sound like Paul at all? There are pastors who will preach this, but they won't sound like Paul at all. They'll preach the doctrine, but not the warning. Why won't we say these things? Why? Yeah, right, because we're doing it. Right, because we're indulging our flesh. That's one reason. Because we just want to be liked. We we fear what man thinks more than we fear what God thinks. We want our church to defined by how many people come and how much money we have, and we've we no longer will care for people and their souls to eternity. We'd rather whisper sweetly and they go to hell than say what's true and right and loving, and they go to heaven, and we go through a tough time. So do you hear that? Can you receive this warning? It's true. And if you continue in these sins without repentance, they'll bring them to light. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this can also be useful to help you evaluate others. This is what they were dealing with in this church, people who are teaching falsely, sounding godly, but whose lives were given to indulging the flesh. This is meant to say to the saints, listen, it's evident that they are not godly. Look at that. They just indulge the flesh. Many deceive. Many talk a good game. Many are hearers of the word but not doers of it. This is a hypocrite. But God does not lie, brothers and sisters. He is not like us in our parenting that give threats and warnings but don't follow through. This is what Mandy despises about me. God is not like that. He will not be mocked. Uh, Let's close with verse 24, even though it's not a part of our text. I want to close with it. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is partly defining what a Christian is. That those who belong to him Don't walk in their flesh anymore. Again, that doesn't mean we won't sin. That doesn't mean we won't battle sinful desires. That will happen. But it's our lifestyle. It's not what we've given ourselves to. But it's also a hope. We all know 1 John 1, 9 fairly well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. To free us. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. You're you're not a slave to it anymore. He has freed you from it. Don't lie to yourself saying you can't help it. It's not true. You've been freed. Jesus was raised from the dead. He broke the chains. He broke the bonds. You're not a victim. You don't have to keep walking in this. Have some hope in Jesus. Have some hope in Jesus for each other. I know this is hard in your marriage. There are sins in your spouse that you're just so sick of. Jesus promises to cleanse him, to cleanse her, to have crucified. God will work it out of them. Be helpful. Pray. Encourage. Yes, rebuke, but be gentle because you're no different, right? But there's hope here. It's not perfection. This won't be immediately. It's just teaching us constantly of our need for Christ. We'll feel the strong urges and lusts of the flesh, but we aren't to gratify them. Because if we live to gratify them, we'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And so may God have mercy on us. Let's pray.